welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I am Eduardo Suárez. Twenty twenty is a year we will never forget. So unique and so painful for so many people in so many places. But 2020 has also been a momentous year for journalism. It has forced journalists to report on a complex, never-ending story, sometimes risking their lives and often under threat. It has accelerated changes and it has created a reckoning of a race that was long overdue. It has brought layoffs and losses, and yes, a few silver linings too. Our guests today are four of my colleagues, our director, Rasmus Nielsen, the director of our journalist uh, fellowship, Mira Selva, the leader of our research team, Richard Fletcher, and our head of leadership development, Federica Cherubini. All of them have published research that can help us understand what's happened in journalism in 2020, and more importantly, how some of those changes can play out in 2021. Rasmus, Mira, Richard, Federica, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Mira, let's start with you. Um, you started 2020 by publishing a report on how journalism works under assault in Central and Eastern Europe. But then the pandemic hit and many authoritarian leaders used the pandemic as an excuse to curtail uh, press freedom. So how did it happen? I think those who would attack journalists used every excuse they could to do it this year. So what we started with was concerns over misinformation that was spreading online over COVID-19, the term infodemic that was coined by the WHO, was used by authoritarian readers to weaponize, you know, to attack journalism. So there's legislation that had been passed in Hungary um, very early on, for example, that made it kind of illegal to spread what would be classed as fake news or news that causes public panic, but was in fact legislation that could be very used to attack critical reporting. And even when the laws weren't used as such, they had a very chilling effect on journalism. Journalists became very scared of reporting. And, and I guess that some of those threats, uh, we're going to see them again in 2021. What would you say are the issues and, and the hotspots to watch in terms of press freedom around the world? I think the main issue is access. So I think it's getting harder and harder for journalists to access politicians directly, whether it's in press conferences or through interviews. It can also be very hard for journalists to get onto the ground because of all the restrictions we've had. It's become very easy to seal off certain areas, whether they're hospital wards or certain regions, and say, it's, you know, you're not permitted to go in and report. So I think this is a real issue for press freedom and the ability of journalists to go in. The other thing I'm concerned about is the role of the contact test and tracing data and data protection generally, because I think there's a lot of data being gathered under emergency legislation without the necessary protections. And I can easily see scenarios where this is used to both attack journalists and also to attack their sources. Uh, but obviously, I mean, challenges this year for journalists are not just around press freedom. And uh, Federica, this, this year has also seen um, issues for news organizations uh, you know, for example, a recent report that you authored uh, suggests that remote work 
um, may stay with us in some form after the pandemic is over. Um, many publishers are even planning to reduce office space. So which kind of newsrooms um, do you think we will see after COVID is over? Well, the pandemic showed that um, what in some newsroom felt impossible before um, was in fact doable, um, albeit some difficulties, of course, um, which is working in distributed settings with teams in different location. Um, and working from home, at least to a certain degree, is uh, here to stay. 54% um, of the people um, we served in our Changing Newsroom 2020 survey said that they would like to go back to the office a bit less than before, um, for example. Um, so I think we'll see many hybrid newsrooms uh, in the future with some people in the office, some people working from home, some, of course, reporting on the ground. Um, and this, will, of course, will come with challenges. Extensive planning uh, will be required and some challenges of communication to make sure that we keep everyone aligned and on the same page and without creating differences and, and, and disadvantage group with between those who are in the office and those who are working from home. Um, but we'll bring also some advantages, some flexibility that we've all experienced um, to some degree during this year. And of course, an advantage in, in the possibility of recruiting uh, away from the center of the cities in some metropolitan cities in, in many countries where many uh, papers are based and therefore hopefully um, increasing the chances of hiring more diverse too. Well actually that's a point that I wanted to make too. I mean 2020 has obviously been a year, year of reckoning for many publishers and protests against the death of George Floyd started difficult but obviously necessary conversations about race and diversity in many newsrooms. Uh, so how do you envision these conversations going forward and, and, and how can news executives ensure that the newsrooms are more inclusive and, and more diverse? Um, yes, 2020 has also accelerated the reckoning on the lack of diversity uh, in newsrooms. Um, again, respondents um, in our uh, Changing Newsroom um, survey indicated a focusing on increasing specifically ethnic diversity is going to be the priority for 42% of the respondents. Um, we've also seen in the survey a feeling that progress has been made in diversity at the junior level in organizations, but there is still a lack uh, of diversity at the top. So that will be an area where people should, should focus. Um, I think this is, of course, important um, at an internal level, but also because um, the coverage that, um, that this organization put out reflects the views of those um, who select the content. Um, and the homogeneity of, of views uh, portrayed um, means that large part of the audience might also not feel heard and represented um, in the coverage, which is, of course, a, a big challenge. Um, I think news executives should focus on actively changing the situation, uh, start doing gathering data and tracking internal progress uh, that has been made, um, putting people and budgets uh, behind diversity initiatives. Um, of course, I'm aware in the present situation where it's financially challenging for many newsrooms, this is not easy, but um, it's of course something that needs to change and needs to happen. And as I mentioned before, take advantage of the flexibility of working and, and hiring more diverse um, could be a place to start. Yeah, that's definitely key. Um, Richard, I would like to turn to you now, uh, because obviously 2020 has been the year of COVID, and, 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 and you've authored several pieces of research on the impact of the pandemic on journalism in, in several countries. 
um, uh, you know, news consumption and, and trust in news went up in the first months of the crisis. But then we also saw the rise of misinformation, uh, sometimes coming from politicians and sadly from, from journalists too. Um, do we know uh, whether some of these changes will endure and, and transform people's relationship with journalism going forward? Well, I think that the, clearly the coronavirus will have an effect on on the work that journalists do, and also the kind of broader structure of the of how the media works in different countries. But I think from the point of view of the audience, it's slightly harder to see what the lasting changes from coronavirus might be, uh, if there are any. Uh, as you mentioned, news use surged at the beginning of the of the crisis, but I think since then it started to return to sort of levels that are similar uh, to what we've seen in previous years. And more broadly, it's not clear whether this surge was primarily driven by a desire to seek information about the virus or whether it was really just about having people having more time uh, in lockdown. And obviously this matters for the, for the patterns of news use we'll see uh, in the future. When it comes to trust, uh, trust in coronavirus news started off very high, but in the UK, as we measured it, we saw that it started to fall quite sharply over, over the summer. And I think this was a consequence of uh, the crisis and also the coverage coming to be seen by the public as, as more and more political. And I think that's likely to continue as uh, countries face up to the economic consequences of the pandemic and the, and the difficult political decisions that will, that will go along with that. And it's, it's not clear to me at the moment that coronavirus will be, will be good for trust in news uh, in the coming years. Um. Our longest-running initiative this year here at the Institute has been the UK COVID-19 News and Information Project. Um, this is a project that was based on surveys that we filled it uh, from April to August and has analyzed how Brits have navigated information and, and also misinformation about the pandemic. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this, Richard. What surprised you the most about the findings? Uh, and also, um, what would you say is the most important important finding going forward? Well, I mean, in a way, uh, this wasn't so surprising, but I think it's it's probably the most one of the most important things that we found. And it was just the, the sort of clear difference in, in how much more trusted scientists, doctors, uh, and health organizations are for information about coronavirus, if compared to, say, politicians, governments, or, or even the news media. And I know not only that, it's just how, how stable that, that, that sort of high level of trust was over time, even as you know, mistakes were made and, and, and they came under enormous pressure. I think evidence is starting to build up now that, that trust in these sources of expertise is, is linked to people's knowledge about coronavirus and their, and their willingness to follow guidance and, and take preventive steps. So I think the one thing journalism could do, and I think this is particularly important, uh, from the point of view of public health, is perhaps to focus less on politicians and pundits uh, in their coverage and more on sources that are highly trusted uh, and can demonstrably help people uh, understand uh, coronavirus and navigate the crisis better. Uh, on this note, uh, Rasmus, uh, as we are recording this episode, uh, Britain and, and Canada and the US are starting the rollout of the first COVID vaccines. Um, and we're seeing a considerable uh, amount of people who are at least hesitant about the path ahead. Um, what does research suggest uh, journalists uh, can do to improve trust around vaccines at this critical moment? 
I mean, first of all, I, I think we should recognize it's up to journalists and editors if they see it as their role to improve trust uh, around vaccines. I think the first commitment of most journalists and editors is to seek truth and report it and then let the cards fall as they may. Um, and in that sense, they, they may not necessarily seek to play a role in increasing trust. Um, but I think it's clear that one can pursue factual, straight reporting and still think about the implications for public understanding of the situation that we're in. Richard highlighted one thing. Um, in part, it's about the sources that reporters turn to. Um, you know, politicians, various pundits with opinions, sometimes political editors and others, um, are not held in high esteem by the public um, and often don't have the domain expertise to really explain either the practicalities of a vaccine program the way a nurse uh, or a doctor might or the science the way that a medical researcher and a scientist could do it. So one thing the journalist uh, really can think about is the choice of sources, at least for stories that are about the vaccine and the vaccine program itself. More doctors, more nurses, more scientists, fewer politicians, uh, fewer pundits, uh, fewer people with opinions. I think another thing is um, to sort of recognize, if you will, that you know we are very social animals and we respond to a sense of how other people are navigating a crisis. And in that sense, um, this is also, I think, in completely in line with the ambition of seeking truth and reporting it, um, more emphasis on the fact that the vast majority of people in every country where we have uh, survey data uh, have very high confidence in the vaccine, say that they intend to take it, um, rather than the much, much smaller minority of people who are hesitant, let alone hostile to the vaccine. Um, it's important to coverage the reality of vaccine hesitancy and to cover the reality of small communities of anti-vaxxers and people who are actively hostile to the idea of vaccines. But the risk uh, in some of that coverage is that it creates the impression that these communities are much, much larger than they actually are. And the risk is that that will influence how the majority think about this because they might worry that even though they are confident that the vaccine will work and that they want to take it, if they get the impression that lots of people think differently, that will undermine their trust in the vaccine. So that's something for journalists to think about is the sources that they rely on um, and also how they cover issues around vaccine hesitancy without losing sight of the fact that the vast majority have confidence in the science, have confidence in the health system and intend to take the vaccine as soon as they can. Uh, Rasmus, this has been such a tough year for uh, many news organizations uh, around the world. Uh, we are seeing falling revenue, uh, we are seeing layoffs in so many places, uh, but, but we've also seen some silver linings and stories that are successful. And, and, and I would like you to walk us through some of these things that may be changing for the better in the business of news. Um, so what are the stories that have inspired you in 2020? that might, might inspire others in the new year too? I mean, first of all, it is of course important to recognize that the backdrop here is very uh, dark. Uh, top line revenues in the industry continue to decline. Uh, print is in inexorable decline. Broadcast is being disrupted by streaming uh, and other digital services. Uh, Google and Facebook are gobbling up uh, a large share of the digital advertising market. So the situation is extremely challenging. Um, and most organizations see declining revenue and that decline has been accelerated in, in, by the impact of lockdowns and the recession uh, that has followed from the pandemic. It's a really tough situation and I don't think there is any 
value in uh, sugarcoating uh, just how grim it is for, for lots of news organizations. But we shouldn't um, overlook the fact that there are also a growing minority of news organizations um, who are doing well. Um, and I think it's particularly important to recognize this is not just a few extremely unusual outliers who can appeal to a global elite English language market. <clears throat> it's great for the New York Times and for the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and the Economist that they're doing well, but fundamentally they are um, very, very uh, different from almost every other news organization in the world in terms of their business opportunities. I think the much more important thing to note is that we see, I think especially in Europe, but not only in Europe, a growing number of examples of news organizations that do really distinct and valuable journalism that people engage with and are willing to either pay for or support through membership. Um, and we see it in markets that are much, much smaller than the English language market um, in ways that are delivering, uh, in some cases, even growth in as tough a year as, uh, as this year of the plague. We see it with some legacy organizations who have very successfully reinvented, them, reinvented themselves for the digital environment, whether that's Dagens Nyheter in Sweden, um, uh, Le Monde in France, uh, NRC uh, in, in the Netherlands, um, Spiegel in Germany, organizations that all report growing digital subscriptions. Um, and they have tough years ahead of them because they're still weaning themselves off a declining print. Uh, um, revenue stream, but they have, uh, I think, in many cases, quite a bright future ahead of them. We also see it with some really impressive uh, digital-born organizations. Uh, some of that is in Europe, um, El Diario in Spain, uh, Setland in Denmark, uh, the correspondent in the Netherlands, uh, Mediapart in France. Even more encouragingly, I would say, and even more importantly in a way, is the, the fact that we also see some examples um, in less privileged countries than you know, rich uh, and democratic, sort of stable democracies in Northwest Europe, uh, like the Daily Maverick in South Africa, uh, Malaysia Kini uh, in Malaysia, who are other examples of organizations that are building really uh, Im uh, impressive and inspiring business models around distinct quality journalism. And I think the rest of us can learn a lot from those organizations. Um, it's tough. Uh, there is no way to um, to cover that up, and we shouldn't cover that up. We have to face it. Um, but I, I, I will say um, that there is a lot to be learned from organizations that, uh, like the Daily Maverick, as their CEO Stiley says, are born into the fire. Um, and I do have to say, you know, um, if uh, if new entrants in South Africa and Malaysia uh, can make the business of digital news work, then odds are uh, those of us who live in more privileged countries have a shot at it as well. So I think we can learn a lot um, from these inspiring examples of really great journalism that also generates sustainable business. Definitely. Um, and before the end, uh, um, I would like you all uh, to make a wish for journalism in 2021. Um, I'm curious, what would you like to see in the new year uh, for journalism? Mira. The conversations we've been having about diversity in newsrooms and how important it is to have new voices and also just diversity at all levels of the news agenda, both reporters, editors, audiences. I would like this to be a reality and a sustained reality, not something that we speak about once and then forget about. True. Um, Federica, what's your wish? Um, I wish for newsroom leaders to realize that alongside innovation in product and tech on new business models and content formats, which are all very important, but for their organizations to thrive, 
they also need to invest in their people who are the ones that make all of those innovations possible. Um, and for these to be reflected in their choices and their strategic priorities um, for the year ahead. Richard, uh, do academics have wishes? Uh, sometimes. Uh, I think my main wish is uh, for uh, measured and responsible coverage of the, uh, the vaccination effort, because it's just going to be critically important uh, for uh, the coming year. That's so, so true. Um, Rasmus, what's your wish? I mean, I'm tempted to give a big speech, um, but I'll just say I wish that we will look at the world as it is. Um, in light of what it could be, rather than in the light of a romanticized, sentimental and airbrushed um, a reminiscence of what we think it was like in the past. Well, that's so necessary uh, when journalists are involved. Uh, thank you, Rasmus. And <clears throat> thank you, Richard, Federica and Mira for being with us today. Our guests today uh, were our director, Rasmus Nielsen, the director of our journalism fellowship, Mira Selva, the leader of our research team, Richard Fletcher, and our head of leadership development, Federica Cherubini. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to uh, miss any news from the Institute, uh, you should subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our Twitter bio on, or our homepage. Thank you for listening to Future of Journalism. We wish you happy holidays and plenty of health for you and your family in the new year. I'm Eduardo Suarez from the Reuters Institute. We'll be back soon.